Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 9th, 2022. Um, it's been a dark March. It remains a dark March because of Ukraine. The newspaper headlines today are dominated by the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and of the economic war, which has been triggered by that. Um, wise man I interviewed at the weekend, Peter Pomerantz, suggested that the Ukraine isn't really about Ukraine. We're writing our own narratives onto it, our own fears, our own concerns, our own reading of history. Yesterday, I interviewed uh, Tom Hartman, the popular uh, American radio uh, progressive who suggested that the Putin-Ukraine invasion and the G.W. Bush-Ukraine invasion are part of the same Oil wars, and oil war seems to be very much in the headlines. The price of oil surges today as the U.S. bans uh, Russian uh, crude. Um, we've been talking a lot about oil, and I had the British academic, the Cambridge political economist, Helen Thompson, on the show, suggesting actually that Ukraine represents a return to what she calls the hard times of the 1970s, the oil wars of the 1970s. And uh, Thompson reminds us about how miserable the 70s is. And perhaps because of inflation, because of oil wars and international uh, political instability, we are indeed returning to the 1970s. So what I want to do today is take your mind off the 70s. Rather than the 70s, we're going back to the 60s, which was much more cheerful, much more romantic, much sunnier, with one of the world's most romantic and sunniest novelists, uh, the great William Boyd, the author of Trio, which has just come out in paperback in the United States, and is indeed a book about the 1960s. It's lunacy, it's zaniness, and might help us take our mind off the awful 2020s, which uh, we are being told are actually really the 1970s. Uh, William, welcome. Real honor to talk to you. You're talking to me from your, uh, your study in, um, in Chelsea. Uh, how do we compare the 1960s and 70s? Uh, you have a good memory. Were the yeah. 60s as sunny as the 70s were dark? Um, well, actually, not really. I mean, my teenage years coincided almost exactly with the 1960s, and I was at university in the 1970s, so I have vivid memories of them all. Um, the, the, this novel trio is set in 1968, but that was a very dark year, in fact, everywhere except the United Kingdom. Um, there were massive riots in the U.S., uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the Vietnam War was at its height. There were huge social upheavals in France and Germany and Mexico, student riots, Italy as well. Uh, if you weren't living in England, the world seemed to be going to hell in a handcart, a bit like it seems to be going today. So in a funny sort of way, you know, swing in London and the swing in the 60s was something of a, of a misnomer. Um, and I, I was exploring this this uh, this disconnect between life in England in the in the late 1960s and life in the rest of the world in this novel. We were still having a party 
here in England, but the rest of the world, I think it was it was as grim as the 2020s in a funny sort of way. 1968 is the year that um, the novel trio is set. Um, one headline from the Smithsonian suggests that that was the year that shattered America. Why do you think the party continued in England? The English people just natural partiers, optimists, not really willing to acknowledge the reality of things? I think there's a to a degree that's true, but I think it's to do with various phenomena that occurred. The 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 kind of rock music business uh, was dominating everybody. Were you a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stone fan? You know, we forget these passionate arguments that that raged at the time, um, and also because in in the UK uh, the troubles that arrived in the seventies, you know, Northern Ireland terrorism. Uh, power terror, cuts, power cuts three day week. Yeah, that they were just simmering away in the 60s, they hadn't really hit, and so we had no real student unrest like they had in, in Paris. It was almost like the French Revolution being replayed, or, or in Germany, 1968 was a watershed year in German society. So somehow we were in a little bubble or a little, you know, uh, self imposed ghetto of, of fun and uh frivolity in a way i think that's the the word i would use it was a kind of frivolous time um and uh, but then history caught up with us pretty swiftly thereafter but um so i think it's just one of those accidents that i remember you know as a as a teenager reading about the war in vietnam which was raging the tet offensive began in in january 1968 and uh, the north vietnamese army and the Viet Cong almost overwhelmed american forces uh, at the beginning of 1968, um, and Paris in May was a battlefield. It was a war zone. Um, but we were, you know, there was the odd demonstration here, but fundamentally the mood was one of kind of careless frivolity, as I say. The, the New York Times sent a reporter to London to to kind of try and analyse the the mood of the country, and he said he'd never visited a country where there seemed so little awareness of the upheavals that were going on in the rest of the world. So maybe it was a kind of social amnesia or a willful forgetting or a willful refusal to acknowledge that, you know, times were changing, the world was changing, the social order was changing, but we in the meantime were arguing about, you know, would the Beatles split up or not? Um, William, you begin the book. I, I always love inscriptions. They always seem to me at least to tell you a lot about a book. You begin with the quote from Chekhov, every person lives his real most interesting life under the cover of secrecy. I think you're a, a big Chekhov fan. Could one say the same about nations? Could one say that every country lives its real most interesting life under the cover of secrecy? And in that sense, England was a sort of an appropriate metaphor for your cover of that Chekhovian cover of secrecy. Yes, I think actually I would use it in the plural, interesting lives. I think that you forget that there are so many, there isn't just, you know, an English experience or a British experience. There are there are many, many variations of that. And and some of them are self-deluding, some of them are, are wishful thinking, some of them are hedonistic, etc. So I think depending on which particular, you know, level of society you find yourself in, you, you might very well have been living an interesting life um, in secret while you got on the 7.30 train 
uh, to London to to go to your office. Um, so I think, but I think it's very true of of everybody. I mean, I am a great Chekhov obsessive, and um, there's no doubt he led a very interesting secret life, and he was intrigued by these parallel lives that exist in in everyone's um, you know voyage through this veil of tears. And I wanted in this book to look at three people all leading what seemed fairly secure secret lives, but slowly but surely their secret lives uh, are overwhelmed by their public lives. And uh, you realize that, that that security is in a way uh, bogus or is a, as a kind of camouflage that you, you can't protect yourself against the real world. So there's quite a serious sub theme underneath the, if you might say the, the fun and games of underneath the, uh, yeah. underneath the, the beach scenes, yeah. uh, in yeah. Brighton. Um, William, with that, I know you don't want to give away too much of the plot because we want people to buy the book. Um, but very briefly, tell me about the these trio of characters in the book and what their secrets revolve around, why they have or how they have these secret lives. Well, the, the book is uh, uh, covers about a, a two-month period and it's to do with the shooting of, a, of a, one of these slightly zany rock and roll British movies that were being made at the time, you know, very cool, lots of music, very uh, up-to-date, great fashion. There was a little mini boom in the British film industry that lasted, you know, five or six years. And the film that's being made is typical of that type of film. And the, th the three characters uh, of the trio are all connected to the film in some way. There's the producer, um, Talbot, uh, who is uh, has a a covert sexual life. Um, his his ostensible sexuality isn't the one that interests him most. There's the film yeah, star, and that's who, a very contemporary narrative. It would be almost surprising if he didn't have that shadow sexual life. Yes, and of course, in 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 the UK, uh, homosexuality was legalized in 1967. So there was a sudden liberation. But people who had been living you know, or whose sexual lives were in fact illegal, you know, didn't adapt overnight to this new liberation. And he's a man in his 60s, and he's finding the, the new societal norms hard to cope with. And the other person is a, the star of the movie, who's an American film star called Annie Vicklund, who's got a very troubled past. She's young, she's a huge star. She's been uh, enticed to play the lead in this British film. Um, and she's having an affair with her leading man, though she's been married and has a has a lover in Paris. So her her private life is pretty complex. And the third person uh, is a novelist who's married to the film's director. And the, this woman is called Elfrida Wing, and she her secret life is one that's fueled by booze and by the fact that she hasn't written the word for ten years. So she has and terrible. She was supposed to have been the next Virginia Woolf, right? That's right. This is an albatross around her neck. Everyone describes her as the new Virginia Woolf, and she's come to detest Virginia Woolf. But paradoxically, she decides that writing about Virginia Woolf may lead her out of her terrible writer's block. So we have these three people who are all connected to the film, some intimately and some tangentially. And over the course of the summer of 1968, we see how their their lives unspool and how their fates uh, determine uh, their futures. Uh, I read somewhere, um, uh, William, that you write your endings before you write the book. 
um, which I, I'm not sure how, uh, how 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 unusual that is amongst fiction writers, or for that matter, non-fiction writers. But does that give you a kind of teleological view of history and certainly of the novel that you're always moving backwards? Well, it's a kind of pragmatic uh, modus operandi. I mean, it, it it doesn't work for everybody. You know, some novelists just start writing and wait to see you know where their imagination takes them. But I like to have everything planned in advance, and I actually spend probably twice as long planning a novel as I do writing a novel. And I think having the end of your novel in mind, the destination you're heading to, um, in a way makes you write with confidence. I don't write particularly quickly, but because I know what I'm going to write on any given day when I sit down at my desk, I don't have that sort of head scratching, you know, worry, uh, neurosis, um, what happens next, because I've made all those mistakes in the in what I call the period of invention. Um, and so I write steadily and I, it, it works for me. And um, to, to a certain extent, once you know how the, a book wants to end, you can almost and I don't, don't do this all the time, but sometimes I've written the last paragraph or two of the novel uh, before I've started on page one because I know exactly the kind of mood and the kind of catharsis that I want to to bring about in in the in the novel um in a way you know that that's the the luxury of art um the, the fact is that in life we have absolutely no idea what the future holds even though we think we may have it but in in the world of art you know the novelist can play god and can determine every outcome he or she wants. So it's a it's a wonderful privilege, um, and of course, uh, it's uh, in a way utterly false to the human experience. You mentioned that at the end of the sixties, Britain was obsessed with the story of the Beatles. I don't know if you saw the the the, 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 the new documentary uh, by Peter Jackson, "Get Back" on the Beatles about um, their nineteen seventy album when they were splitting apart it's a very sad movie i think about the end of the road for the beatles their failure to gel as a band and the various strange relationships between mccartney and harrison and of course lennon um you've never really reached that end of the road have you you seem to have had remarkable success have you ever had a crisis a, a creative crisis you're one of the most productive writers in the world today well i think it's partly a, a preemptive uh, move on my part. I mean, I've always written lots of uh, other things as well. I'm basically a novelist, but I've written many films and many TV series. I've written plays. I still write a lot of journalism. And it's a kind of, um, you know, work ethic that maybe my Scottish heritage installed in me. And um, I, I feel that if you're a writer, you know, what you should be doing is writing all the time. You, you know, I can't write a novel. You know, I've just finished a novel, but I can't start another one for a while. I need batteries to recharge. Easier said than done, William, though. I mean, that's easy for you to say. There's going to be, that hopefully, thousands of people watching this and, and thinking to themselves, well, why can't I be like William? Why can't I just sit down and write my 16th or 17th novel, or if I don't feel like it, write a... Uh, um, write a film script, or if I don't feel like that, write one of my great pieces of journalism, like 1968, the year the 60s exploded, or British films in the swinging 60s. Um, do you ever have any time where you're not writing? 
Yeah, I'm, I, I work hard in order to sort of be lazy, it, it, paradoxically. Um, no, I think it's, you know, it is, these are old lessons, you know, hard graft, uh, you know, uh, earn your own luck, you know, that sort of thing. It's, um, and I, you know, I, I have to say that um, I have professional disappointments, you know, on a regular basis, you know, projects I think are going to happen don't. Is um, secret life, William? Uh, well, I'm not going to divulge it to you, to you, uh, Andrew. But uh, yes, of course, I have a I have a rich interior life. I mean, another thing that uh, Chekhov said, you know, he, he tapped his head and said, you know, the great adventure goes on in there. And to a certain extent, particularly if you're a writer, um, that, that's true. Your your inner life, your the the life the life and the lives you imagine um, are incredibly rich. I mean. Uh, I, I often say that if I'm delayed at an airport for eight hours, you know, that equals two short stories, you know, because you just look around you, you see the people, you start imagining, you start in, in a way fantasizing about their lives and all sorts of ideas begin to pop up in your head. But um, no, I think I'm, I'm, I, I have a very nice uh, idle life as well as a, as a kind of head down, nose to the grindstone working life. I'm not a, I'm not a writing machine by any manner of means. I am speaking with the great William Boyd, the author of Trio, um, which is far from his third novel. Uh, it's out just in paperback in the US. It's also already out in the UK with a more romantic, perhaps European kind of cover. Um, we're going to take a short break. And then after the break, I want to talk more about Trio with William. I want to talk about cars. I want to talk about movies. Uh, I want to talk about whether or not uh, we can indeed return to the 1960s. So stay with us, everyone. And in about 60 seconds, we'll be back with William Boyd, the author of Trio. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. 
Now back to Keynote. We're back with William Boyd, the author of uh, Trio, uh, a book that came out last year, now Adam Paperback in the United States. Um, William, the, uh, the Washington Post headline, the review of your books, describes it as a rollicking escape from today's soul-crushing social and political turmoil. I'm not sure if that was written before or after Ukraine. Um, did you think of this book or do you think of this book as a rollicking escape? Is it supposed to take our mind off our real lives, off the real world? Um, to a degree, it is a, it is a comic novel, um, but I think, uh, or a serious comic novel, put it that way. I mean, I am a, a comic writer, I think. I think my, my lens on the world is comic, not tragic. And uh, all my novels have an element of, of black or absurdist humor to them. And some of them, in some of them, that becomes more overt. So I would classify Trio as a, as a serious comic novel. There's a lot of, you know, mayhem and, and uh, fun to be had and, and, and satire and, and humor. But there are very you know, serious themes running beneath it. Um, and, you know, not all the lives of the trio end happily i won't say any more than that so it's it, there is a darkness lurking there but um i think the, the the book the reception to the book was pretty extraordinary uh, almost everywhere it was published and of course it was published in the middle of the pandemic and i think people relished the chance to to laugh you know a bit uh, before they they realized that the the laughter had maybe a a, a grimmer under, undertone to it but um it's um it's it's not it's not frivolous in the sense that the um the the world of the the 1960s movies were it's that there is a it's about human beings and and the human condition or the human predicament so that has its its lighter side and has its more serious side but um it's uh it's it is a comic novel finally so to a certain extent the the washington post headline was sort of on the button, but that was written pre-Ukraine, that's for sure. Is it rather like the novel, is it designed as a, a day out in Brighton? The novel is set in Brighton, the English seaside resort that many of us love. I mean, it's a complicated town uh, beneath, I guess, beneath the, uh, the beach uh, in Brighton is something a little bit more serious um why why did you choose brighton is there something symbolic or you just liked it as the, yeah. as the stage for trio i think i mean i know the town quite well i know i have very good friends who live there and and brighton occupies a curious place in the kind of uh, what would you call the topology of english seaside towns in, in the novel one of the characters describes it as the las vegas of england and i think in a way that's quite true because um, it's always been a kind of racy town, a kind of sexy town. And if you were having an affair, you would you would have it in a hotel in Brighton. Yeah, those um, those old, old, uh, postcards were classic. That's right. That's right. And 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 you know, even today, it's uh, the town is uh, it's you know it was very famous in in the early nineteenth century. Uh, the Prince Regent uh, had his court there. Um, and it's got some wonderful buildings and venerable uh, terraces and so on. But it's also got an, a, a darker underbelly. There's, there's quite a serious drug problem in Brighton. There's a lot of homelessness. So it really is a kind of 
perfect microcosm uh, for, for the book or a perfect backdrop for the book, even in 1968, um, when it still had that reputation. It's a sort of louche kind of risky place. And so the fact that this film is being made there and these people's lives are, are unraveling uh, made it the perfect backdrop. I'm not sure if this is right, but I seem to remember that in Paris there was a one of the war cries of the street in 1968 is beneath the pavement is the beach or something like that. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, yes, guess, uh, Brighton, it's the reverse, right? Yes, I think so. Beneath beneath the pebble beach as well. It's not even a sandy beach. Um, there is a, some solid concrete. Um, so I think it is, a, it is a very interesting town and it's only an hour and a bit away from London. So it's always had that kind of connection with the, with the capital. Um, but it has this strange reputation that arose in, in Georgian times with the Prince Regent, who was a, 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 a glutton and a, a philanderer and a, and a spendthrift. And he made Brighton his kind of playground. And I think it's, it's, it still has that reputation and that those echoes still resonate to a certain extent. That sort of post-structural French arrogance, of course, was particularly on display in Paris in 1968. You note that you're a, uh, a comic writer with a degree of seriousness. You can't be a British comic writer without making fun of the French. Is there a little bit of that in the book? I know a French philosopher pops up at one point. Yes, well, I'm, I am very Francophile. I have a, have a house in the southwest of France and I spend you know, three or four months a year in France, and my, my books do extremely well in France as well. So I so I love the you French. Have to be careful what you say about the French. <laughs> yes, I love the French, but as as they would be the first to point out, uh, not everybody is is wonderful and marvelous. And so in this in this book, I have a very uh, pretentious, arrogant nineteen uh, sixties style philosopher or cool philosopher who is loosely loosely based on all manner of people, uh, but he certainly doesn't suffer from any self-esteem problems. And so I, I do poke a bit of fun at that kind of, you know, 1960s, um, uh, what would you call it, hip philosophy. Um, but uh, no, I, I think, um, you know, it's, the British have a, have a kind of love-hate relationship with France. You know, it's the closest country to us. Uh, and we, we and vice versa, actually, the French have the same kind of problems with the, with the British or with the, the English. Um, so it's a very interesting uh, national relationship. Um, but uh, you can cert there's certainly plenty of targets you can take aim at on either side of the channel if you feel like it. The visual quality of the book um, is uh, brought out in these wonderful British and American covers. Uh, you are not only a, cine a cinematic novelist, perhaps, but uh, I don't know what the reverse is for writers. You're a, you're a novelistic writer for, for movies and film and filmmaking features very centrally in the book. You talked about a mini boom in the English film industry in 1968. My favorite English film actually of all time is a, is a film made after a year after 68, 69, The Italian Job, which of course is full of minis. A uh, film about cars as much as anything else, the, the, the ultimate rollicking escape of one kind or another. You have cars in this film. Uh, sorry, you have, uh, you have cars in your book. Uh, the Alvis, which I actually wasn't familiar with and, and, and was, a, a, I thought, a very romantic touch. Um, are you a car man, William? 
Well, here's it, another paradox. I don't drive. I don't have a driving license. Oh, um, my God. But that would probably make yeah. you even more of a car, man. Yes. and But because I, I don't have a, uh, uh, a license, I'm often in taxis and often in what we call mini cabs. But I think in the States you call gypsy cabs. Is that right, Andrew? Um, uh, you know, yeah, I used yeah. to actually drive a mini cab in London. So All right. <laughs> Well, there or, or Ubers, I suppose it would be now. Yeah, so Ubers, I spent yeah post post minicab but i spent a lot of time in the back of cabs talking to the drivers and of course inevitably the conversation turns to cars so for a non-driver i i i know quite a lot about cars and i have uh have quite strong opinions about cars so when i'm writing my novels and i don't just put a car i always choose the model or i or else i ask one of my minicab driving firms like what kind of car would a hard up accountant drive in 1968 in London and then they come up with the, the perfect perfect example so I think it's part of the texture and the research that goes into a, a realistic novel you know you want that world to to be totally authentic and plausible and to and to resonate with people with your readers and so um, I try to be as, as precise as I can and uh, the Alvis which Talbot drives is I, I don't think they exist anymore. Actually, well, they do. They've been brought, but that's the point. I did a bit of research, and now they're bringing them back to life, just as you oh, right. brought them back yeah. to life in your book. Yeah, exactly. Well, the other car I did. I mean, I wrote a James Bond continuation novel, and of course, cars play a huge part in in the world of James Bond. And um, I, I actually had him uh, driving a different car from his his Bentley. Um, and uh, I, I got into a certain amount of trouble about that. But it, again, it was a, a novel set in 1969 and uh, I wanted to get it absolutely, absolutely right. So I, I do have a kind of car obsession, which is odd for somebody who doesn't own a car or drive a car. What do you think of the Italian job? Is my obsession oh, I, a bit childish, do you think? No, I love it. I think it's a great, a great film and it's... Uh, it, it endures. I, I think I, I saw it when it was released in the cinema, actually, and I loved it then. I must have seen it, you know, four or five times since. And I think it's a it's a it's a classic example of that type of film. I mean, this little mini boom of in the British film industry started, I think, in 1965 with um, the, the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night. Um, made by Dick Lester, who is a very American film director who lives in England and who made quite a few films in the 60s, which still stand up. But he kind of launched this kind of, you know, almost cinema verite, zany, um, frivolous, facetious type of film mood. Um, and of course, the opportunity for putting great music under it. Everyone's wearing mini skirts and has long hair. And it sort of caught the mood of the country for a while and there was a series of films that were made but the boom ended none of these films made money um particularly and so that the american studios who were funding them pulled the money away and, and and then i think the watershed was in 1970 the two films that came out were lindsay anderson's if a very dark film very but, dark. yeah and and performance the film that uh, uh, nick, nick rogue uh, directed with mick jagger in it and Performance was actually made in 1968, I think, uh, but wasn't released until the 1970s because it was seen as too too dark and troubled. So in a way, sort of symbolically, the release of these two films marked the end of that little period of, of zany, to repeat the word, um, 
fun, you know, sexy movies that the British were were churning out. And um, so, it, so my my film, which has got a very stupid title, um, uh, like a lot of these films, um, is highly representative of that particular little mini boom that took place. You mentioned earlier, uh, William, that you're a serious comic writer. At the end of uh, so, I mean, I don't think all. I think it'd be fair to say that any good comic writer is, by definition, serious. And I'm guessing every serious writer is, in a sense, comic. Uh, we have a tradition on this show that uh, at the end of the show, uh, I ask my guests for a recommendation of a book. Since COVID, I had one rule. Uh, that they're not allowed to recommend uh, Camus' La Peste because during COVID, everyone was reading La Peste or rediscovering and saying, oh, this is a brilliant book about COVID and about fascism, blah, blah, blah. You begin your book with a quote from Camus, uh, sort of a, 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 I guess, a kind of existential comedy in a sense. Uh, uh, Camus said, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. All the rest, whether or not the world has three dimensions, whether the mind has nine or 12 categories, come afterwards. These are games one must answer, one must first answer. Uh, that quote you you juxtapose with the the Chekhov quote at the beginning of the novel um, is that a comic quote? Um, no, I think it's a really fundamental quote. I mean, it's it's very hard to disagree with that point. And in in my novel, all three characters, all the the three members of the trio, in a way, ask themselves that question: um, you know, Is my what life worth living? And the answer they give to that question determines. Their, their fates and what they do about it. So I think on a, on a very human level, Camus, who's somebody I'm intensely interested in and who is a very extraordinary man. Um, very un-French in a sense, in his lack of pretentiousness, isn't he? Yes, and, uh, and um, because he actually was Algerian, in fact, rather than, than French, but became you know, this kind of icon of the French intellectual post-world post-war world, um, and he died, of course, died very young in a car crash. Was he driving? Um, I was just thinking of that. Was he driving or was he in the back of a car? No, he was just sitting, he was sitting beside his publisher. His publisher was driving uh, Gaston Gallimard, and uh, they were driving down to, I think, Gallimard's house in the south of France in a, uh, you know, talk about cars, a Facel Vega, you know, that Volkswagen uh, uh, luxury car and, and took a corner too fast and smashed into a tree and um, Camus died instantly. Um, but he just won the Nobel Prize for literature as well. So he's at the very height of his powers and one wonders what he might have gone on to to write. But he was the, the French war in Algeria was going on. So he was very disenchanted at the time. And uh, but he's a most interesting man. And that and that. And I think his philosophy, such as it is, uh, speaks very clearly to people who aren't philosophers or who aren't that right. interested. In yeah, that's the whole point. There is only yeah. one serious philosophical yeah. problem, and that is suicide. And that allows us all to be philosophers, doesn't it, William? Yes, exactly. And in some ways, that's what philosophy should be doing. It should be trying to, to explain or understand or analyze the lives that we all live, live rather than something that's, you know, airy-fairy and recherche in academic circles. So... Camus is very interesting in that way, and his 
books of philosophy are, are very accessible and very easy to understand and to apply to your own life if you feel like it. So, um, but this, it was a very relevant quote. I mean, I agree with you, Andrew. I think the quotes you put at the beginning of your book are very important. I always do it. I always take great care with these um, little uh, quotations that I introduce the book to because it's a kind of clue to how to read the book or how you, the author, want the uh, the readers to perceive the, the deeper themes that are in, in the book that they're about to read. So it's a very deliberate signposting that takes place, I feel. And I all my novels have um, epigraphs and uh, uh, they're all extremely important to how, the, how I would like the book to be seen and interpreted. So Chekhov and Camus, two heavyweights, um, sort of at the front of this comic novel in a way point to the more serious undercurrents that are, that are flowing beneath it. Well, perhaps we should call um, your, 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 your trio, which is just out in paperback in the US, a comic philosophical novel. Congratulations on that, uh, William, and, and everything else you've done. You're, as, as I said earlier, sh shamefully productive, <laughs> even if you won't acknowledge that. Um, you're not allowed to say the La Peste because we don't oh, no. know that. But what else should people be reading uh, on March 9th, uh, William, in addition um, to, to your book, Trio, and all your other great novels? Well, I'd like to recommend uh, a young British woman novelist who, who I have read all her three novels. She's only written three, and her name is Evie Wilde, W-Y-L-D. And I think, you know, I kind of keep up with the, the younger generations coming on the, down the pike behind me. And I think Evie Wilde is, is the real deal. And I think her books are published in, in, this, in the States as well. And her latest novel is called uh, The Bass Rock. But her, the book I like best is called uh, All the Birds Singing, her second novel. I think it's an extraordinary piece of work. Again, uh, beautifully observed and, and quite dark, but it's very interesting to see um, this uh, emerging talent. And I think uh, she's definitely one to watch. So I would say pick up any any of the three books that Evie Wilde has written and you, you won't be disappointed. I'll have to get Evie on the show. Do you know her? Yes, I do know her a bit. She actually runs a bookshop in Peckham in uh, East London. So she's... Uh, What's she's, that uh, book with Peckham in the title? Uh... Oh, The Ballad of Peckham Rye. I think yeah. that's a Muriel, Muriel Spark novel, yes. Which I Muriel Spark in her? What kind of writer is she? Yeah, she is. She's very... She's um, Scottish she, as well, right? Well, uh, Spark. Yeah, she, she's um, very sparky and she she writes very well. Her, her, her view of the world is, is quite... Um, uh what would you say very very candid and open and 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 not remotely seduced by uh romance or anything like that but no she's philosophy in her work no, no, no but it, she's she um she she has a little bit of the supernatural in her work which also is true of muriel spark which is quite interesting yeah or i what, what impressed me about her and you know this is some, some i i take great care of the structure of my novels and so i think i can analyze that the structural skills of other novelists and her second novel, this one, All the Birds Singing, is an incredibly well-structured novel. I mean, it's maybe a bit technical, but it's a, a beautifully crafted piece of luxury 
um, you know, artisanship. It's uh, and from a novelist to a novelist, uh, that's uh, a, a real compliment. And uh, for someone who's so young and who's in a way is just at the beginning of a career to produce something so sophisticated is is remarkable. High praise from one of the great masters of, of, uh, of the, one of the great artisans of, of fiction writing, William Boyd. Finally, William, I'm asking all my guests this. Uh, in, uh, in early March 2022, William Boyd, the author of Trio, who runs the world, William? Who's in charge? Well, you'd have to say at the moment it looks like that ogre in Moscow, Vladimir Putin, but I have a funny feeling that uh, the people uh, are going to end up running the world and the voices of the now we have voices that can be broadcast i see um all manner of clandestine uh if you like power movements uh reaching out to uh, overwhelm and undermine their sort of demonic uh dreams of, of vladimir putin so i sort of hope that in a way the the, the common sense and the common decency of humanity will will triumph at the end of the day.